Hello and welcome to Bothering Strangers with Max Hearing. I'm Max Hearing and I have a very special guest today. He, you might have seen him uh, across YouTube advocating for Israel, for Zionism, for the Jewish people. He recently debated Noam Chomsky and he has been debating many, many people on the Israeli-Palestinian debate. My guest today is Rudy Rachman. Rudy, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, this I, I'm not going to lie. I've This one, scheduling this interview took like a lot more uh, postponement than I, than I planned on. It took more postponement than I planned on as well. Okay. I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure when you, when you, when you personally emailed me, cause I was speaking to the manager, I was like, Oh wow. I didn't, this is, I didn't, I didn't know it was like, it was like, this was such an odd occurrence to like keep on postponing. Um, I want to just talk about before we get into kind of uh, like just the Israel-Palestine debate, I realize it's very, it's a very like, uh, politically charged kind of thing. It's very personal for a lot of people. Uh, I don't even plan on getting too specific into the, that that specific, like why we should think one way. I just want to talk about your personal story that led you to becoming the, the like an Israel rights activist, an activist for the Jewish people, and everything you are today. Sure. I think for me that starts from the very beginning, um, where I was born in France, moved to Israel when I was three, then moved to Miami when I was five. And very quickly, I developed a sort of identity crisis where I didn't really know how to explain what I felt and who I was and where I was from and what I was connected to. Because growing up in Miami, I was labeled the French kid. And when I'd visit family in France, I was the American cousin. And going to a Jewish day school, I was told that I had to be Ashkenazi because my father was Ashkenazi. Although I was raised fully Sephardic because my dad adopted my mom's customs. So I was Sephardic at home and in every single way. But yet certain rabbis would call me Ashkenazi. And here I was the French kid. And here I'm the American cousin. And here I'm Jewish. And here I'm Israeli. And I didn't really know what to say when someone asked me, where are you from? And who are you? And apparently I was supposed to give different answers depending on who was asking me that question or where that question was being asked. And everything started to make sense or become more clear when I went through my first experience with anti-Semitism, uh, this is the story that whenever someone asked me, how did this all start for you? Well, it started there. Um, I was seven years old, took a trip to London with my mom and my younger brother, and we got kicked off of a bus uh, by a neo-Nazi bus driver when he recognized that we were Jews and physically threw us off the bus. And when that happened, it made me realize who I was because I realized it didn't matter where I was born, grew up, lived in trouble to resided in or a passport I had or even what I believed in or didn't believe in. I was a Jew. And I understood in that moment that being a Jew wasn't just this thing that you could believe in. It's really who you are and where you're from. Uh, and the second thing that that moment did for me is it made me promise that the next time I deal with anti-Semitism or really any form of injustice, that I'd have to be prepared. Uh, whether that be physically, emotionally, intellectually, ideologically. And that's what led me to becoming an activist as my life evolved. Um, did the army after high school in Israel and after the army started school in the U.S. at UCLA before transferring to Columbia University. And that's where the ideological fight uh, became a reality for me. And from there, it just took off and continued in that space. Um, so I have a couple of questions. One would be when you were seven, I, I mean, I on wikipedia you know it's not hard to find out about what happened when when you were in england when you were seven um was your was your identity crisis in that moment was it just like it was like okay there's no issue with like this whole like american 
French kind of Ashkenazi Sephardic pull anymore. Like you just, this is who I am and everything didn't seem to matter anymore. Everything else I should say. Uh, I would say that was the prime time where that was a problem because I moved to Miami when I was five. So give it a little bit of time for when you become six and seven, you're experiencing different things in Miami where most people identify as Argentinian, Venezuelan, Colombian, Haitian, Jamaican, and even in the Jewish day schools, uh, most of the Jews then and still many of those today have some sort of Latin American experience. And so they would come to a Jewish day school and we would have the Maccabi games, sport games, and there would be all these teams that they would really represent. I'm really Argentinian. I'm really Venezuelan. I'm really Colombian. And because my French, my parents had French accents, they were you know, automatically labeled as French and I was automatically labeled as French, but I left France when I was three and I never felt any sort of connection to France. And I grew up in America, but I grew up in a city in Miami that no one really feels American in America. It's kind of like you feel like you're international, whatever you come from, wherever your parents and grandparents are from is what you connect to. So it's not that I went through an identity crisis in the sense that I didn't know who I was. I knew that I was Jewish and Israeli. I've always known that. Um, But it was more so I didn't know what to respond to people when they were classifying me as French or American. And if I should say no, or if I should give a different answer or a particular answer, I always had the same feeling inside of me. I never had a confusion of who I was, but I had this sort of crisis in the sense that everyone's telling me different things and I don't know if I should correct them or not, or what I should respond to or not. And seven was really that, you know, peak of that question and that experience and everything just became clear in one moment. That, that sounds very difficult when you're like a young child to have that kind of like, who, what do I even say? It's, it's not even something, you know, you feel like you should be taking on that young. Uh, I also want to talk about Colombia. So you went to Colombia, you went, you went to UCLA first, but you went to Colombia. Uh, yeah. In the Jewish community, it's known as uh, one of the colleges with, with uh, more anti-Semitism than others. How do you think that affected kind of you're okay because like, I can tell you I went to the University of Kansas where like we didn't have any of it you know what I mean it's like I, I wasn't I was never forced to be put in any situation so how do you think that affected you uh so it, I actually chose Columbia University because it was listed as the number one most anti-semitic university in 2016 when I was transferring to a different university um and the reason why that came about was while I was at UCLA, I was taking classes both at UCLA and Santa Monica College. And it was the first time that they brought a BDS resolution uh, to the campus in 2013. And we fought against that resolution. We got it turned down. And I realized that, you know, us fighting these resolutions is really just, you know, a distraction of the main problem. There's a whole psychological and ideological conversion of the next generation, teaching them that Jewish identity uh, is not real or something else of what it really is, that Jewish experiences should be minimized, that Jewish indigeneity and connection to land should be discarded, that legitimacy and empowerment should be something that is demonized. Um, And this is what was happening on college campuses. And I kept hearing from students and even the parents of my peers that I don't want to send my children to this school. It's too anti-Israel. I don't want to send my children to that school. It's too anti-Semitic. So I was so fed up with that answer and the passive and apathetic approach that the Jews had that I went on Google and typed in number one most anti-Semitic school in North America. Columbia University came up one. And that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to go to the number one listed most anti-Semitic school, change things there, and then no one will be able to give the same excuses that they've been giving until now. Uh, so I can relate to that. Cause I also, when I, when I graduated high school in 2016, there was a lot of that, uh, with, did, did you feel that way when you, when you, you know, obviously you came to Columbia with an expectation that it was like, 
anti-Semitic. When you got there, though, did it was it sold that way? Uh, yeah, it was definitely experienced that way. Anyone that is a strong Jew or a proud Jew stands up for their connection to Israel. And that doesn't mean that they're against Palestinians at all. To the contrary, I think most people who come out and are very pro-Israel are also very pro-Palestinian. But just the fact that you're pro-Israel and connected to your identity and land and history and culture and aspirations and values, that automatically means that you are associated with all sorts of homonyms and attacks and, and horrible ideas. Um, uh, there were swastikas, you know, that you would find in books. Um, there were chants. There were weeks where they would, you know, use to demonize Israel. Almost every other week there was an event, you know, targeting Jewish identity or Israel. Every single group uh, was in coalition with the anti-Israel group. Every single professor uh, were saying like horrible things about the Jewish people and about Israel. And I can give you plenty of examples of classes that I took where I participated in those classes and had to show why the professors were wrong uh, and in a way intellectually challenge their ideas and show why they were wrong to the classroom. So this is definitely something mainstream in Colombia. And not only that, but I would say that the administration catered to the majority. And since the majority was anti-Israel, they catered to that anti-Israel majority. So whenever we would post flyers for events that we were doing, having nothing to do even with the conflict, you know, just events talking about uh, Jewish culture or Jewish history, uh, our flyers would get vandalized, would get taken down. And the school decided to say, you know, well, announcement to everyone. Uh, if anyone gets caught removing flyers, then that group will be uh, suspended. And if they get do it twice, then they'll be completely removed off the campus. And our flyers kept getting taken down. We had never taken down any flyers. And what we did is we set up actually a sort of trap uh, where we put up a bunch of flyers in an area we knew that would often get taken down. And we left someone there uh, to film anyone coming and taking them down. And eventually they came, they took them down, we filmed them. They were all part of the anti-Israel group on campus. We showed it to the administration and nothing was done. And every single time that, you know, something was done against us, nothing was done and nothing was taken care of. And I wouldn't say this is because the administration was inherently anti the Jewish people or anti-Israel. I just think it's because they wanted to cater to the majority, which the majority was anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. Mm. Yeah, you, you touched on something important there because that, that's what we see happening uh, far too often anyway, just in, in like in life. Uh, so I want to talk about, you know, how, you know, Zionism now, because the way, you know, if you, if someone were to go on your YouTube videos where, you know, they see you talking with students, with whoever, you present a different view of Zionism than many I've ever heard. And I myself would, I would consider myself a Zionist as well. But before that, what, is your definition just so we can move from there what is your definition of zionism so i'll tell you what i define it as but i also view that my definition is the definition that has existed for since the word was coined and also what all zionists or the majority of zionists related to of course some people can define it differently if they choose to uh, but it's the right for the jewish people to self-determine on their ancestral land it has nothing to do with the conflict. It has nothing to do with Palestinians. It has nothing to do with, you know, what has been going on today with the status quo and immoral situations. It's the idea that the Jews should have a right to be able to come back home to their ancestral indigenous homeland and to express self-determination in a way that fits their needs as a collective indigenous people. That's what it means. Now, you, there are many different strands and streams of Zionism, right? You can have uh, Zionism that is more right-wing, Zionism that is more left-wing, Zionism that is more socialist, Zionism that is more capitalist, Zionism that is more religious, Zionism that is more secular. Uh, but that has nothing to do with the core root of Zionism, which is just the idea that the Jews have a right to 
to self-determine. Then why they have a right to self-determine or how they have a right to self-determine or in what way they will have a right to self-determine, that can be discussed with different voices and different opinions within Jewish spaces or with people who support this idea but have different beliefs. And there are many different strands of Zionism that I'm actually against. Uh, for example, something that's very popular within the non-Jewish world is a lot of uh, Christian Zionism, yeah. where I definitely support any individual that is a Zionist, right, that believe the Jewish people have a right to self-determine. But we can't separate the fact that within Christian Zionism, there's this belief or this support for Israel and the Jewish people because they, th and this is not all, but it is definitely something that's very popular mm -hmm. within the movement, mm -hmm. that the reason that they support Israel is because, you know, somehow when the Jews come back to Israel, Jesus will come back and then they will kill, he will kill anyone that doesn't accept Jesus, including the Jews. Right. So if you're supporting me and my people because you want us to eventually be killed in your plot, although, of course, I don't believe that that would happen. But if that's the reason you're supporting me, then I don't need your support at all. You know, I have enough respect for myself not to support someone that's trying to get so create some sort of end game where my people die. So there, there are different streams and strands of, of Zionism. That being said, there's movement, I think, that has been growing for the past. 20 plus years, especially in intellectual spaces, that is trying to redefine Zionism by redefining anti-Zionism. And what they've redefined anti-Zionism, instead of being against the Jewish people's right to self-determine, they've redefined anti-Zionism as anti-colonialism or anti-status quo, anti-conflict, anti-suffering of Palestinians. And when you define anti-Zionism as anti-something negative, you're basically associating negative to Zionism. And that's not an attempt to actually try to help Palestinians move forward or to end the conflict. That's an attempt to demonize, minimize, and delegitimize the ideas and the values of what Zionism truly means, which is the right to self-determine for the Jewish people. And that's why whenever I get into such conversations, the first thing I do before getting into a more ideological explanation is I ask the person that I'm speaking to, well, what do you define as Zionism? And they usually say something that is completely incorrect and probably something that the 99.9% .9 of Zionists will tell them that's not what Zionism is. So clearly they have the wrong definition. Um, and then once I hear their definition, I also know where to correct it and express them that that's not what Zionism means to any Zionist. And it's not up to non-Palestinians to define what it means to be Palestinian. And it's not up to non-Zionists to define what it means to be Zionist. So you should hear the definition from Zionist, which means X. And so if you're anti-X, you're anti us and what we need and being anti uh, the conflict, and all this sort of stuff. We are also anti the conflict yeah. as Zionists. And the only way to be able to move forward is to be able to understand the terms and what we're actually trying to communicate in order to create a reality that actually fits the needs for all peoples. Uh, yeah. So I went to a Jewish day school as well. My whole, my whole life until college. And I feel like whenever I, whenever they talk, I mean, there was a lot of Zionism, you know, being thrown at you, as I'm sure there is a Jewish J schools across North America, but they never talked about Palestinians, though, or at least not in like a way of being like, so you can be pro-Israel, but at the same time, let's recognize like that there is a suffering in the West Bank that, you know, for instance, like that, the quality of life in the West Bank is significantly lower, as are the wages and everything like that. You know, they never talked about it in a way where it said, hey, there is issue on both sides. And like, there is blame to be placed on both sides. So, I mean, how problematic do you think that is? Because I think a lot of Jewish kids today who are being trained, and at least in this, in the Western, you know, in America and Canada, 
are being trained to be are being trained to think like that this is it but you can be a zionist and be pro-palestinian too in fact i think if you're anti-palestinian you're also anti-zionist because there's no reality where israelis or palestinians disappear so if you're promoting an idea where uh, you're pro one but not pro the other then you're pro the continuation of conflict and i think as a part of the next chapter of jewish history well let's say if zionism was the goal to return to zion which is jerusalem we already accomplished that in 67 what's the next chapter of jewish history i think that next chapter has to include also the liberation of palestinians and when i say the liberation of palestinians i mean an end to the status quo where there's no equal opportunities no rights to movement um, and that goes also for jews i can't as a jewish israeli go into areas that are controlled by the palestinian authority in hamas there's limitation of movement on both sides uh there you know there shouldn't be checkpoints i understand why there are checkpoints you know from a security perspective or argument that is someone is trying to make logically but do we really want to live in a land that has checkpoints that has walls separating peoples no so we have to talk about the problems that exist and understand why they exist in order to move forward and to change that i think it's a huge mistake that the jewish book did not teach especially those in the west uh, what a Palestinian is and what they're going through and what they've been through and what they seek to achieve because we tend to get each other's identities completely wrong. Oh, yeah. A Palestinian and an Israeli or a Zionist or a Jew are all equivalent or in equal value because we're all human beings at the end of the day, but they're completely different. What it means to be a Jew is a descendant of this ancient collective people. Um, and if you're not Jewish, then you're not part of Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. You can be a citizen of Israel, but you're not part of the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites, and so on. For a Palestinian, you can be a Jewish Palestinian, Armenian Palestinian, Christian Palestinian, Muslim Palestinian. It's the identity of people that were living on this land prior to 1948. So again, I'm not saying that one has more value than the other, but we need to understand the differences in order to understand that they actually don't contradict. And when Israelis hear Palestinians, a lot of them at least, they hear this is the same thing that we want, but just for them. And when Palestinians hear Israelis, they think this is the same thing that we want, but just for them. And it's actually not at all. Our aspirations are different. Our injustices that we experience are different. Our history is different. There's a lot of similarities, but the differences show that our identities, our aspirations are not mutually exclusive. And I think it's a huge disservice not to be able to learn. I will say, however, that in my experience and in the experience of everyone else that I've met, at least in the educational level, I'm not talking about what people learn in their houses, uh, that I don't see or have ever heard of any sort of Jewish institution demonizing Palestinian people. I would say that they missed the mark on teaching who Palestinians are, uh, but I was never taught to hate Palestinians or to see Palestinians as inhuman. There's definitely conversations of conflict where, you know, there's, you know, the wars and there's what's going on in those wars, but we were never seen as or taught to dehumanize another population. But we were also not humanized in the sense that we didn't learn of their actual yeah. identity and culture and humanity, right? So, so there's... It's not in the sense that we were taught something bad. It's the sense that we were not taught enough. And that enough is very important in order mm -hmm. to understand what it means to be a Jew today in the modern world with Israel and what Israel means today and how to be able to move forward. I, would, I was just going to say that as well. I mean, it, it really came down to just a, a complete lack of education. Um, and sometimes, I, I mean, maybe that's just because being in America or in Canada, you're just too far away physically. Uh, I mean, it's another here or there, really. Um, <clears throat> so you've been debating people on college campuses um, on big, significantly bigger forums, as you recently debated Noam Chomsky, who is uh, 
famous linguist, very famous uh, pro-Palestinian activist. Um, what have you seen in the last couple of years, just a lot, just how it's become harder to have conversations with people? I mean, at least pre-pandemic, just hard to have conversations with people on the street, on college campuses, just because there's been an increased uh, political division or an increased amount of political division? There's definitely more of an increased division when we step out of it and we look at this situation in sense of all sorts of social issues, whether that's race-related issues, economic-related issues, yeah. politically-related issues. That's definitely prevalent, and I think anyone that's millennial, Gen Z, or anyone that's just alive and is looking at the situation, they're clearly seeing a division within a lot of the world's societies. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, those that are pro-Israel, those that are pro-Palestinian, I would say that I don't know how it was before I got to uh, UCLA because I was not a part of those conversations, but I can see how it's been since 2013. And while I was at Columbia, of course, it was very divisive, but since then, I see a change for the positive, where there's much more voices that are open to hearing each other's perspectives. There are activists on both sides that are willing to engage with each other, willing to have conversation. And there's still those, you know, majority of people that are activists that are still fighting and still see the situation as zero-sum game. But there's more and more activists rising up and starting to uh, not demonize the other side, not reject the other side, being open to learning and to growing and to find a holistic version of the truth. Because I think that we both sides get the truth about ourselves to get it wrong about the other. And that's the key element that's missing, that we understand who we are, but because we haven't expressed who we are to the other side because we're too busy demonizing the other side, then the other side doesn't hear, and that's happening on both sides. Uh, and I'm starting to see a change of the younger generation. I would say particularly those in Gen Z, uh, Palestinian activists are beginning to be open to speaking to Israeli activists, open to understanding what Zionism means to us, open to understanding what a Jewish state means to us, understanding that it doesn't threaten what it means to them to have uh, a Palestinian civilization, to be able to have the operations that they need. Uh, so there's more conversations happening and I'm seeing a tremendous amount of improvement. And there are other things that are changing even on the ground. On the ground, I'm a, I'm a part of a movement called Habayit here that unites Israelis and Palestinians on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, just in this past week, we were in Silwan in East Jerusalem. And we were also in Kfah uh in Judean Samaria, the West Bank, uh, where we did different activities and meetups and conversations and think tanks. We even do something called Cleaning the Hate, where we pick up the pollution uh, in Palestinian communities and in Jewish communities and show that this land is something that unites us all. And we're focused more on creating uh, the, that humanization process uh, with the next generation of activists and local leaders, rather than trying to go from the top down to the politicians, more so from the bottom up to those that will in the future be the true leaders of their peoples. Uh, so I, there's a lot of change happening. And I would even say like platforms like TikTok, right, which is a newer platform for especially those that are younger, it's not only based like other social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, on what you like or how much time you spend on a certain video or on a certain post. It's also based on where you're located. So I've traveled to a few different places over the past few months and I got TikTok, obviously, like most people during uh, the pandemic, yeah. during lockdown. And I went to France, I went to Bulgaria, I went to Miami and I went to New York uh, in the past six months. And each time that I was in one of those places, the videos that were shown on my feed were not only the things that I like, but also what is going around in that area, because the geolocation of where you are also impacts the videos and the content that you've seen. And because Israelis and Palestinians are living in such close proximity, 
Israelis in their phones at a young age are seeing content that is Palestinian uh, content. So uh, humor, expression of identity, expression of experiences, whatever it is, and Palestinians are seeing Israeli content. And that's actually uh, allowing us to go past this physical barrier that exists and allowing us to experience each other's identities. So I think there are many beautiful things in the works that are happening. Of course, there's plenty more to go, a lot more to change, uh, but I do see a change overall if I go from 2013 till now uh, in a positive way. Um, I, I actually had no idea about that with TikTok, that it was like allowing like people to be humanized. Uh, I, I, I want to ask, cause you live, because you live in Israel specifically, when I'm, do you think that many Israelis, Israeli Jews, I should say, um, just don't, part of the issue with the whole debate in Israel is, is that so many Israelis don't know Palestinians have never met Palestinians. Like, I, like, I, feel, I think that I, I feel like that you just can't go to the West Bank. They can't go here. Like there's so there's such a lack of movement that it creates like issues with knowing people. So do you feel like that's something that's an issue in Israel is that there's just not enough um, just information because no one knows each other? It's definitely way more of an issue than way less of an issue than in the diaspora because there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinians that have work permits that enter Israel every single day, and people have spoken to them. There are Israeli Arabs that are not any different uh, than the Palestinians living in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. They just have an Israeli citizenship, and they make up, you know, what, you know, 20% of the population yeah. in Israel. Uh, they they serve in the government, they serve in the police force, they serve in the army. They're lawyers, doctors, students, every single place within Israeli society. So I wouldn't say that there's necessarily no experience and no understanding that this population exists and who they are, but I would say there's not enough of an experience. And that can really be seen with, let's say, now that we're, you know, several years, several decades uh, from this wall being built, dividing Judea and Samaria and Israel, uh, most Palestinians before the wall spoke Hebrew. Why? Because Israelis would be going into the villages, buying products, getting their cars repaired there, having friends and relationships or whatever else. There was communication, there was travel, there was an ability to interact. And with this wall, now there's no more real ability. And so the younger generation doesn't speak Hebrew. Um, so yeah. there is a lot of an unknown experience uh, that is obviously way more than what happened before this wall, but way less than what's happening in the diaspora where the communities don't engage and speak with each other at all. And in my experience, a lot of the Israelis that are very extreme or the Palestinians that are very extreme in the diaspora just don't grasp the reality that there's no reality where either disappear. Right. They really see it as a zero-sum game. And when they see it that way, it's so frustrating because those of us on the land, even though that there's also a lack of experience between each other, we all know that there's no reality where Palestinians... <laughs> Are disappearing or Israelis are disappearing. So I, I would say those in the land have it have a better perception of it because of the wall and because of the division that has existed, whether physical or psychological. There's not enough of it even in Israel. Ah, okay. Well, psychological division. Um, I kind of want to talk about. I, I I struggle toward this, but I feel like do you, I'm I, do you feel like many Israelis have a sort of a mental occupation? about you know when it comes to this whole debate where they're kind of tied down what to do a certain well so like obviously the word occupation is thrown around a lot in regards mm -hmm. to this particular conflict 
but it's thrown for, for Palestinians, right? That, that Israel is occupying the Palestinians. But on the other side, it seems that some Israelis um, with good intentions, they are, uh, you know, they're kind of, they, they have a mental, it's, it's a very us first thing type of thing. So they're, they don't have a physical occupation, but they have what you could consider more of a mental occupation because they're stuck in this mindset that's putting hate in their hearts and not allowing them to think, you know, about the other, essentially the Palestinian in this case. Yeah, I would say a lot of people see it as a zero-sum game and or see it as it's either one state or two states. Yeah. And so a lot of people that are connected to the land of Judea and Samaria will reject the two-state solution. And in my opinion, most Israelis and most Palestinians reject that. Yeah. Um, and there are people that say, well, you can't have a Jewish state if it's a one state. So I reject that idea. And the reality is it's not going to be either a one state nor a two state. There can be something in between that can exist that can fit the needs of both peoples. For example, something like a federation plan or a canton system, but is actually more indigenous to the way Jews and Palestinians need to live, where we always were tribal people. Uh, so it would have local representation, local leaders, rather than like a sort of national parliamentary system government that clearly even without even dealing with the Palestinians doesn't work in Israel. We're going on our fourth election. There's going to be probably a fifth one after that. That parliamentary system does not work in Israel and focuses on achieving short-term solutions rather than long-term ones. In terms of the word occupation, it really depends how one uses this term. People use the term occupation to define control of land, and which that means that the Hashem Kingdom is occupying Transjordan, uh, Palestinian Authority is occupying Area A and partially Area B, uh, Hamas is occupying Gaza and Israel is occupying Israel and Area C and partially Area B. So if we're talking about control of the land, then there's an occupation across the board. If we're talking about illegal control of the land, well, nothing is really illegal because if we go from point A to point Z to where we are today, then nothing happened illegally. Many things happened immorally. The situation that exists is immoral. But there were wars that were waged to ethnically cleanse the Jewish population from the river to the sea. Uh, in 48, in 67, and in 73, and even in between, there were uh, movements uh, to create genocide against the Jews, um, the intifadas. There were peace treaties and accords, like the Oslo Accords, that divided the land unjustly for both peoples. Uh, there was all sorts of things that happened that led us to this point. So it's not illegal because it's very legal what happened, but it's very immoral also what happened. I think the politicians on both sides failed both peoples. I think suffering happened on both sides. Uh, granted today, for the most part, day-to-day -day lives of the average person, Palestinians are suffering more. Um, but we're not playing a competition of who's the greater victim. We're yeah. understanding that the that the real, uh, the real culprit of the victims on both sides is the idea that we should be in the conflict and the reality that we're in a conflict. So if we really want to end the suffering for either and both peoples, we have to end, end the suffering for both and by ending the status quo and conflict. And to do that, we need to be able to humanize relations on both sides. We need to be able to create coalitions and understanding of what both want and create a reality, of course, not by imposing a solution and, and living in it, but by a work in process and a journey partaking together of getting to a reality where the injustices are both sides are dealt with and ended and where the aspirations of both peoples are achieved. And there are many theories out there of what that can look like. Uh, but until we start really having this conversation and bringing it up to the mainstream and building those relations, uh, we're never going to get there. I want to, um, what about with the media? So obviously, I mean, even to the most casual observer, like 
you look at this debate and you may not even you may not even have enough information to pick a side truth to, to, to like to, or to like be like i feel one way i feel this way truthfully but you kind of look at it and you say oh well that's a whole you know it, it, it gives you this very like bad picture of the whole conflict and uh what is the media's role in kind of uh showing this uh, incorrect picture of of Israel, of the West Bank, of of just the whole conflict of, of as a whole. The media's role is to make money. The way they make money is by mm. selling advertisements. The way they make money by selling advertisements is by getting people to want to tune in. The way they get people to tune in is by selling fear, division, war, combat. You know, any sort of gladiator sport, wrestling, anything that's one versus the other is something that people want to tune into, is something that people want to watch. So the media's role in all this uh, is to show that it's either the Israeli side or the Palestinian side. Uh, It's very one side or the other, rather than understanding that there's more context to this and talking about and empowering voices that bring people together. Um, And I think that's very problematic. Um, And that's why I try to create my own ways of creating media through social media with uh, YouTube, with Facebook, with Instagram, with TikTok. Um, Hopefully we're working on a TV show right now, a documentary series on the lost and disconnected communities of Jews around the world that will be sold to a major platform, uh, to sell on platforms like that. I think there are ways to create media as an individual that can then revolutionize the way people think and see the world. I mean, books and even documentaries have changed the world. Like look at a documentary like Blackfish a few mm. years ago completely yeah. destroyed SeaWorld, right? Yeah, so yeah, a did. book or documentary can destroy an industry or can make an industry, can destroy an idea or make an idea. And so I'm trying to push content that is creating unity, creating understanding um, and creating an ability for us to move forward. But I think the media has done a tremendous disservice to both peoples and has led to or been a part of this continuation of the conflict. So uh, I forgot to ask this earlier, but so with, with social media, you know, which has its flaws, as we all know, what is the role of that? Like, you're you're obviously using it a lot. You know, your YouTube channel is one of your main places where you put where, where like you put your stuff out into the world. So, what is the role of social media going to be in in helping to improve a conflict that is often seen in a very black and white way? Yeah, I think uh, social media, like you said, there's many negatives. You can have echo chambers where you just hear the same opinions. Uh, You have confirmation bias. You look up something and you end up finding what you want to look for, even if it's not the right answer. Um, So those are definitely negative things that occur. That being said, I think social media is usually a representation of what the culture is. And if we want to change the culture, we can also use social media to change the culture, but by creating content that allows a space for all sides to experience what is being said as a version of their truth that allows them to accept the reality of the other. So a lot of times I create content that when Palestinians look at, you know, the things that I'm saying, and of course, many don't agree with everything I'm saying. I'm not yeah. trying to claim that. But a, a lot of the content uh, that I'm creating is to try to include the narrative of the Palestinians, oftentimes with Palestinians themselves, um, and the narrative of the Israelis so that Israelis could start experiencing what do Palestinians actually say? What do they mean? What do they want to say? What do they want to do? Who are they? Um, and allowing Palestinians to experience that as well. And I think when you create content that is more holistic, that transcends this right-left paradigm, religious secular paradigm, uh, Palestinian-Israeli paradigm, I think it allows the human being to find the values that they connect to and that are important to them in that information 
and then be open-minded to hearing other values that they may have been uh, not exposed to until then uh, and understand things differently. So I think that social media, using media is very important, um, but it's not only about using the facts, it's about using all the facts and also using certain narratives that are able to be more inclusive and holistic. Is one of your goals when you think about, you know, making content and what you're going to do next is was one of your main goals that you say trying, especially in a debate so emotional as, a, and, and as this one, uh, just trying to show that, you know, we or Jews, Palestinians, whoever, maybe have more in common or have a lot in common, just have more in common than they thought they did? Absolutely. I mean, let's start off by a third of Palestinian DNA on average is actually Jewish DNA, which doesn't necessarily mean anything beyond the fact that just we descend from very similar amounts of people, like a third of their ancestors are actually our people. Uh, So there's a lot of similarities there, uh, both in mentalities and culture and in language. And furthermore, the two thirds that it's either mixed of you know, Arabs that poured into the land or other peoples that were living there or other peoples that had moved into the land are also very similar people. So there's a lot of similarities between uh, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, the way we speak, the way that we think, the way that we express our culture. It's just that we were taught this narrative that they want exactly what you want and the way to get what you want is through them. And both were taught that narrative, I think, starting with the British, uh, which what the British did in every civilization and place that they colonized is divide and conquer. They yes. went to Nigeria and they divided the three ethnic groups against each other. They went to Afghanistan and they divided the uh, local tribes. They went to Pakistan, India, and they divided it into Islam and, and, and Hinduism, and Buddhism. And they like created all these division um, that caused people to see each other as their enemies rather than understanding that their true enemy was actually laughing while they were fighting each other. Yeah. And since then, we've kind of continued that and still see it. So you, it's very it's very relevant and telling when you look at how Jews learn the uh, history of the land and what role the British played. And they learn about the British experience in the land as they were very pro-Arab. And when the Arabs learn about... Uh, the history of the of the British presence in the land, whether it's Arabs living in Egypt and in Jordan or Palestinians, they learn it as they were very pro-Zionist. And the British were not pro-Arab and they were not pro-Zionist. They were pro-British. <laughs> and once you understand where all this stemmed from or where a lot, of, a lot of it stems from, we can kind of go backwards and realize we're here today because we started in the wrong way. And we started in the wrong way because we were convinced that this was the way to start. Now that we've gone the wrong way, How do we get back to the right way that should have been done in the beginning by also focusing on undoing what shouldn't have been done, but in a way that allows us to truly move forward together? I I think for me, that was a very eye opening moment when I was in high school and I and someone kind of gave a history lesson on on not only Israel, but like the whole region, Israel, uh, Syria, Lebanon. And it was like, listen, so the French and the British in this case just divided up this whole area and didn't care for religion, didn't care for groups. They just did it. And that's and they left us with what we have today. Yeah. Uh, you know, you talk about like, pr- uh, just like mindset though. What this is this debate I find in particular, it's like most people, at least in America, they don't care. But if you do have a side, you know, you probably have some deep emotional connection to whatever your side is. So. Do you find that oftentimes the issue when talking about this is that it's very like, um, you know, it's that it's so 
you know, whatever you may be, you may call yourself prisoner pro Palestinian, is that it's so like emotionally ingrained in you. And then, and, and when somebody comes at you and somebody says, oh, Israel did this, Israel did that, or, or the Palestinians this, Palestinians that, then, then you're taking it as a, not an attack on Israel, but as an attack on yourself. Definitely. And I think it, it oftentimes is an attack on the individual and the collective that they belong to. Um, so when one tries to say uh, all Palestinians are terrorists, for example, that is an attack on all Palestinians. There are individuals within every society and identity that are terrorists. Does that mean that this justifies calling every single human being, millions of them, terrorists? No, it's xenophobic. That is wrong. And that is an attack on every Palestinian. Uh, same thing when someone goes and says the idea of Israel having a right to exist and Zionism and the Jewish people and Israelis are all XYZ monsters, killers, whatever it is. That is also demonizing and an attack on on all Jews and all Zionists and all Israelis. So those things do exist, and I do think they're personal. Um, but I would say that, you know, as if if you're truly passionate about your cause, I think it's important to use the fire that you have in a way that actually allows us to move forward. Because we all have a sort of fire inside of us, and that is expressed in different ways. You can create a podcast. I can create videos. People can go in medicine. People can go into politics. There are many ways of, of, of being able to use the passion and the fire that you have using the tools that you also are, are given available and the skills that you have to go and create something in order to change. That, for me, is the difference, by the way, between an advocate and an activist. An advocate is someone who supports something and an activist is someone who goes about making a change like mm. a player rather than a fan so right. you're going and creating a podcast bringing these conversations bringing these ideas spreading these ideas and i'm sure you do many other things that would be for me an activist whereas an advocate would be someone who just shares a video of some like cool israeli tech you know yeah. something that was created that you're, you're like a supporter of a cause you're a fan or you're an activist you're a player so that's that's for me the difference and and for people who truly care whether they're on the side of the Palestinians or on the side of the Israelis, if you truly care about those people, then you have to use your fire in a way that allows those people to move forward. And none of them will be able to move forward through the other. It's with the other. And I think until we understand that, we won't actually be able to move forward. Um, well, thank you for calling me an advocate. No one's ever called me that before. Uh, uh, sorry, activist. See, I even messed it up. Activist. I've, I've been called an advocate, not an activist. Um, how, this is more personal to you, I guess. If, if anyone were to see your videos, you know, like you or hate you, they'll see that you stay calm, you know, when, when discussing something that is personal to you and personal to the, to the person you're speaking with. What, how, I mean, first of all, there is a, there's a major value in, in, in staying calm and kind of, you know, so you can have like, you can at least attempt to have a productive conversation. But how did that happen? How did you learn the skill to kind of just stay calm while debating something very emotional and very, very gray, not black and white, but very gray? So I think my entire life, I've always been someone that's very calm and collected. Um, I've gotten mad before, but I've never lost my cool or temper in a way that like I said something that I didn't mean or did something physically that I didn't mean. Um, and whenever I see someone losing their cool and kind of seeing red and just losing themselves, I've always found that very funny because it's like, how do you not control yourself? Like, you know, how do you lose, like, how do you not do what you actually want to do? Like, how do you do something you don't believe in or that it's not a part of your core values or your morals? Like, to me, it never made sense. Um, so I think naturally I have that. But also with with nurture, I've got 
I've been through so many different conversations with so many different peoples, um, not only Israelis and Palestinians, but also some very horrible individuals like neo-Nazis and so on. And I've heard almost every single slur and argument. And I understand that no one is born that way. You know, no one is born with neo-Nazi ideas. No one is born with hating Palestinians or hating Israelis. So something happened, whether an experience or something was learned, something went wrong in this pure form of light, right? There was something that tainted yeah. it. And, you know, I try to try to do my best to try to, you know, remove that darkness and to bring back the light to, you know, healing someone. And within Judaism, we have this concept of tikkun olam and mm-hmm. so to help fix the world and being a light upon other nations. And we also have this this concept of tshuva, where you can, you know, it's, it's not necessarily fix yourself, but it's more fill yourself. So fulfill yourself. Uh, it's, it comes from the from the uh, shalem. Uh, so to do tshuva is also to 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 find a way to 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 heal and to fill yourself up with light and to remove the darkness uh, that that exists. So every time that I'm in one of these conversations, I recognize that could it could be the first time and it could also be the last time that this person that I'm engaging with or everyone listening that they hear from someone that's Jewish, Israeli, or or, or a Zionist. Meaning that in that moment. I have the responsibility, and all of us, whenever we get into those conversations, to do the best in our abilities to communicate the story of the Jewish people. Because it could be the first time that they hear it, it could be the last time that they hear it. Also, I know that sometimes you plant a seed with an idea, and you show someone some compassion, and you show someone some truths, and maybe if they don't accept it or want to buy into it or see it right away, that that doesn't mean it necessarily won't change later on. Um, So for me, I just find it most effective um, to be out there and to use my fire in order to ground people uh, and to have them see another reality that isn't against necessarily their reality in order for us to move forward. Unless, you know, they, you know, go off and say like some neo-Nazi stuff, like all Jews should be killed. And I just let them expose themselves. Right. Well, that, that, that that's a, you know, a slightly different thing when they uh, are neo-Nazis. And I've seen a couple of videos of you arguing with literal neo-Nazis. Um, I, I know we're, kind of running we don't have a lot of time left so i want to ask you about um what you know what is the importance of trying to understand someone's psychology when you're you know talking to them about some of this like in the sense of like last week you had no you debated noam chomsky you know he's a 92 year old man's like i don't know how likely he is to kind of go and, and, and change his tune but you know what what is the importance of just sitting here of trying to understand why why someone thinks the way they do it, I mean, at the end of the day, when you're communicating, you're not speaking in order to speak yourself. You're speaking in order to get the other person to understand. So if you want to be able for that person to understand, you have to understand how they see the world, how what they relate to certain words. They may have different definitions, uh, what's important to them. And that's just not with, you know, it's not only with debating, it's also with relations, right? Whether yeah. it's with uh, your, your, your spouse, uh, whether it's with your brothers or sisters, with your parents, with your children, whatever it is, and any sort of relationship, you need to be able to understand the differences that the person in front of you has in order to better communicate what you're trying to say and what you're trying to get them to understand. So that's definitely important. I have one last question before you go. Um, the thing, uh, as someone who's been a Zionist my whole life, but, you know, the older you get, you kind of start to develop your own opinions and then you, you, you make your own like left. Am I left wing? Am I right wing? Like, like what kind of Zionist am I? You know what I mean? Um, they never talked when I was growing up about, you know, the value of like public relations. 
do you think Israel, like, do you think they, that the Israeli government even values public relations? Because whenever, because the media makes Israel look bad all the time, you know, re- regardless of if it's true or not, they make Israel look bad all the time. So do you think there's any push for like trying for just an attempt to make themselves look better? Uh, there's definitely a conversation. I have not seen it in practice being done accurately. I think a lot of the Jewish institutions, whether organizations or even the government, uh, fail to understand things on the grassroots level. They tend to understand systems and governments and lobbying, but they fail to understand culture and younger generations and how things are changing. Um, so there, there are movements within the Israeli government that is trying to, you know, do some sort of hasbara and explain and trying to do better public relations. I think they've been doing a terrible job. I only hope it gets better. I only hope it comes, it gets better from a, from a, also from a good place, not just from we want to explain away the problems that exist. We also have to deal with the problems uh, and change the problems. But yeah. you know, if, if that existed, then I probably wouldn't have gone into this space that I've gone to because then we wouldn't be in, in the problems that we're in. Yeah, you're, you're it's because it, you wouldn't have felt that any um, kind of major need. Well, um, I thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope I can have you on again in the future to talk. You know, obviously, I realize that this is, that this conflict in particular, regardless of where you sit on it, it's not black and white. It's very gray. It's very complicated. You no know, history matters. There's a lot. There's just a lot of moving parts to it, and I recognize that. So I hope in the future you can come on. We can talk more. You know, possibly in a slightly different direction about maybe the work you're doing you know, on the ground in Israel and all that. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for letting me, for letting me bother you. And um, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me in Israel, firstly. Uh, yes. But on social media, you can find me on Instagram, Rudy underscore Israel. And by the way, it's Israel because that's my Hebrew name, not just because I like Israel. Um, on oh, Twitter, on Facebook, and on YouTube and on TikTok, just type in my name, Rudy Rockman, R-U-D-Y-R-O-C-H-M-A-N, and it should come up. And, okay. So Rudy underscore Israel in, on Instagram and Rudy Rockman everywhere else. Exactly. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for watching Bothering Strangers. Of course. Uh, thank, you for, thank you for watching Bothering Strangers. Uh, subscribe or follow us on follow Bothering Strangers Instagram at Bothering Strangers. Thank you.